0: Hey, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome here to Grace Church at the Medina East Campus. And uh, man, we are so, so, so glad that you're able to be with us here together today. As we are actually finishing a series today that we started several weeks ago. Now uh, that we've been calling the Everyday Revolution. In fact, this has been a long series. I think uh, we started this back in April, and uh, and so we've been trekking through that. And so today, uh, we're looking forward to finishing that. Starting the new series GC3 next week. It's going to be great. Uh, but uh, but let me just say that if you are a guest with us here today if this is your first time out to the Medina East Campus, or if, even if you missed the past several weeks, and thanks so much for being here. Uh, we, we just count it an absolute honor and privilege that you would uh, ca- spend some time with us, carve some time of your Sunday morning to be here, so thanks for doing that. But if you are a guest with us here today, let me t- do my best to try to recap what we've been talking about, because you are kind of catching us at the end of a conversation. And so what we've been doing in this series is, is really we've been sort of talking through the everyday relationships of life. And so kind of the the day in, day out, nitty-gritty relationships that uh, all, all of us in some way or another face. That's what we've been talking about. So you can even just see from our graphic some of the different topics that we've covered, the different relationships that we have talked through. And so at the beginning of the series, we actually spent several weeks talking through the everyday relationship of marriage. Uh, we spent some time talking about the everyday relationship of parenting, uh, how parents and children interact. We talked about the everyday relationship of generations, younger and older. Uh, we've actually talked about work-related relationships. And so we've We've been kind of journeying through these everyday relationships, and our approach has been that while we're talking through these relationships, we're looking at the Bible, and we're really just asking this one simple question. Here, here's the question that we've been asking together that's very simple, but it's profound in its implications, and that's this. We've been asking the question, does God have an ideal for these everyday relationships? So that's been the question. So, so in other words, does God have a way that He wants marriage to be done Does God have a way that he wants uh, parents to parent their children and children to interact with their parents? Does God have a way that older and younger generations interplay with one another? Does God have a way that work relationships are to play out? And here's what we discovered as we've been investigating this question. We have discovered that, yes, God does have an ideal for everyday relationships. And we said that, quite honestly, God's ideal is revolutionary. Uh, that it is countercultural in so many different ways, and it has the power and potential to bring an everyday revolution to each one of us. That's what we've been talking about together through this series. And so, uh, like I said, this is the final week, and we are finding ourselves kind of finishing up this final segment, and we're talking about everyday people. By everyday people, we said that's really a general way of saying this, that what we're talking about here is we're talking about gender roles, okay? And so, again, the question is, does God have an ideal for the way that gender operates within a society, within marriage, within a church, within the family. Does God have an ideal for manhood and for womanhood, right? And if so, what does that look like? And how does that kind of play out in a society, in a church, in the family, so on and so forth? And so if there is an ideal for manhood and womanhood, what is it? So that's what we've been talking about. And actually, we started this a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, and we actually started this this, this, uh, segment of the conversation by laying down a foundation And we said, let's just talk for a minute of what what exactly the Bible teaches regarding gender. And so we spent a whole week to do that. We said, we know this is a culturally sensitive topic. We know that this is one that is oftentimes met with a whole lot of confusion and controversy. And so we said, let's just lay it down. What does the Bible actually teach about gender roles? And so a couple weeks, we had that conversation. Last week, if you were here, we actually spent the entire week simply talking about biblical manhood. And we said, "What, what exactly is God's ideal for men, for masculinity? And and how does that pan out? What does that look like in the different relationships of life? And so we talked last week specifically about biblical manhood. And so this week as we finished, what we're going to do is we're going to switch gears and we're going to spend the rest of our time here today talking about biblical womanhood. Okay? So this is what we're going to be kind of unpacking together today is does God have an ideal for femininity Does God have an ideal for women? And if so, what does that look like? And how does that gender role play itself out in church, in society, in the family, so on and so forth. Okay, now, let let me say before we dig into this, if you missed the last couple of weeks' conversations, I would strongly encourage you to listen to those. I feel like today is just the completion of the last couple of weeks, and so if you're just hearing today, you're kind of only catching part of the conversation, and so you can actually go to our website, you can watch, you can listen to, you can subscribe to our podcast and, and, uh, and listen to the previous messages. All of that, of course, is for free, and I think that would be to your advantage to help today's conversation make more sense. But like I said, what we're going to do today is we're going to focus in, we're going to talk about biblical womanhood. Okay, so here we go. And Here we go. I got a guy talking about biblical womanhood. What could possibly go wrong here, right? And uh, it's actually kind of funny. I was at a pastor's conference this past week, uh, which, you know, is always a fantastic time. That's sarcasm right there. And uh, I was at this pastor's conference, and I had a bunch of these pastors. come. They, they found out that I was teaching on biblical womanhood, and I had a number of them come up to me at one point or another and say, hey, man, just want you to know I'm praying for you, you know, and uh, Godspeed to you. May God have mercy on your soul. And I was like, dude, I'm not, I'm not dying. Like, we're going to be okay. And they're like, I don't know, man. And, um, and so, anyway, I know that this is a bit awkward a, a guy talking about biblical womanhood. And I also know that this is a sensitive topic, especially in the cultural situation that we find ourselves in. But I will tell you this I am excited about what the Bible teaches about the issue of womanhood and femininity. Uh, there is actually an amazing amount of clarity the Bible gives on this topic. And so I'm excited to be able to look together at God's word and, uh, and see what biblical, biblical womanhood looks like. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me? And I'm going to invite you to go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Okay, so we're going to flip over to Genesis chapter 2. We're actually going to kind of pick up where we left off in the past couple of weeks. We spent the last couple of weeks in the book of Genesis, and we're going to return to Genesis. So Genesis 2, and uh, you can grab your Bibles. Genesis is pretty easy to find, even if you're not a Bible person. It's the first book in the Bible, and so you can just turn to the second chapter of the first book in the Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, we actually have some um, that are in the chairs there. You can just grab one of our black Bibles, turn to page 2, and so you're going to find Genesis chapter 2. And then let me just also say that if you don't own a Bible, like if you just don't have one, we actually think it's really important that you have one and you can just take one of ours. Even if you don't believe the Bible or if you're not even sure, you know, that you agree with everything, it doesn't matter. We think it's important that you have one and that you read it. And so you can just take one of ours and just make that a gift from us to you. So Genesis chapter two. And as you guys are finding Genesis chapter two, I think it's important that I reiterate something we said last week. And last week, what we said was this. We said that this conversation... About manhood and womanhood is so important. It's so important. And not only is it important because this is a hot topic in our culture today, but this is actually a really important conversation because there is a desperate need for clarity on manhood and womanhood. Now, we live in a culture that presents a lot of different competing stereotypes of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. We live in a culture that is very confused about how how to define manhood and how to define womanhood, and so there is a desperate need for clarity on this item. Last week, I said this. I said, for men, when you say to act like a man or be a man or man up, we said that that's fine, but the problem with that is there's so many different stereotypes of what it means to be a man that it's confusing to know exactly what that means, and this week, I would like to say the same thing. I think for women... When, 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 when someone says that you're to act like a woman or you're to act like a lady, right? That there, that the problem with that is that there are so many different competing stereotypes and presentations of what woman, womanhood is in our culture that this can all be really confusing. So for example, if, if you're a woman in this room and I looked at you and I said, you need to act like a woman, you need to be a woman, you need to act like a lady, right? How do you interpret that? What images come to your mind when I talk about womanhood? As you think about your own femininity, what are you aspiring to? What is the picture that you're aspiring to in your pursuit of womanhood? What does that look like? Like, So, for example, for some of you, my guess, just to show you some of the competing um, stereotypes and, 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 um, and presentations that are given to us by our culture, for some of you, my guess is when I say you need to act like a lady or you need to be a woman, maybe the first picture that comes in your mind is you might think of like the traditional woman. You might think of like the 1950s, 1960s version, that stereotype that is sometimes propagated of a woman who uh, is more of like a stay-at-home kind of woman, one whose identity is wrapped up in her husband, identity is wrapped up in her children, Uh, her place tends to be in the home, more of a domesticated version of woman. And for some of you, when I say, we're going to talk about biblical womanhood, and we're going to talk about what it means to be, uh, what femininity is, for some of you, this is the image that comes to your mind. You think of a traditional version of uh, this is what we're talking about with women. For, ma- for many of you, when I say uh, to be a woman or to, what, you know, what does it mean to be a woman? Maybe for you, the image that comes to your mind is, is actually the opposite of this. Maybe what you imagine is you imagine something like this. You imagine a picture of feminine strength. You imagine a picture of independence and of self-assertiveness and uh, almost a resistance to the, the previous stereotypes that we just looked at. In fact, I would say that for, for many women today in our culture, if you were to say womanhood, this is probably the picture that would come to most mind because this is uh, what our culture tends to sort of lean towards. Some of you remember this picture? Uh, this picture was actually used in World War II, and then it reemerged, and it was kind of resurrected in the 1980s during the feminist movement. Uh, this picture was used basically as a staple image for the independent strong woman. And so, so now, f- for many women, we say, what does it mean to be a woman? We say, it means to be independent, and it means to be strong, and it means to, 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 be, um, to not be tethered to any of the stereotypes of the past and to be self-assertive. For some of you, when I say, well, what, how do you define femininity? What is the type of woman that you're aspiring to be? Maybe consciously or subconsciously, the picture that you're going after is something like this. You're thinking of the professional woman. And this, of course, is another stereotype that's propagated by our society, that what it means to be a woman is it means to be highly educated and highly competent and highly competitive in the business place, that you take your spot right right alongside equality and men in the marketplace, and it works in the same way. And for some of you, this might be the picture that comes to your mind when we talk about what it means to be a woman. For some of you, quite honestly, maybe the picture that comes to your mind is the stereotype of the healthy, fit, organic woman. Right, the the kind of woman who shops at Whole Foods and eats no GMOs and uses essential oils and only feeds her children whole grain Cheerios while they wear a helmet, right? And that's like the <laughs> there's like a stereotype that goes along. And that's a stereotype too, right? But there's there's this there's this picture of femininity that's presented to our culture. Maybe for some of you, you imagine the fashion model, the trendy, uh, you know, put together. Uh, kind of version of, and all all I'm saying, again, and we could just go on and on and on, all I'm saying is there are so many different presentations and stereotypes, competing stereotypes, mind you, of what it means to be a woman. And all of it begs this question, what exactly does it mean to be a woman? How exactly are we to define femininity? And what is the vision that we are to pursue within that for those who are women? And this, by the way, is why I think Genesis 2 is so, so, so important. Uh, if you were here the past couple of weeks, here's what we said. We said that what the Bible teaches about gender roles is this. The Bible teaches that gender roles are not an issue of social constructionism. That is to say, gender is not something that is defined by nor determined by culture or society. The Bible, whenever it talks about gender roles, it always, always, always appeals to creation. It always talks about Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So what the biblical authors are always doing is when you read about gender roles in the New Testament and other places of the Bible, the biblical authors almost unanimously refer back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you see the creation of man, you see the creation of woman. Why is that important? Because the Bible's saying that gender roles and gender issues are not a matter of social constructionism. It's not a matter of society defining and determining what gender is. It's about God in creation. And and the best thing we can do as human beings is look back to how God originally intended to create us to understand what he meant with gender. So Genesis 2 is really important. Genesis 2 is important because it not only reveals to us that God made man and woman, it actually explains to us why God made man and woman. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible explains in Genesis chapter 2 that men and women were created differently at different times in different ways, and they were created with different expressed purposes. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that, yes, men and women are equal in dignity and worth, and we are equal image bearers of God. That's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1. But Genesis chapter 2 says, yeah, but men and women were created differently at different times, in different ways, with different expressed purposes from God. And so, So what are the purposes of manhood and womanhood? Well, last week, like I said, we looked at manhood. And we looked at the expressed purpose, the created design of man. We found it in verse 15. I'll just recap it real quick. If you have Genesis 2, you can glance down at it. God says this about the man. He makes the man out of dust. He puts him in the garden. And it says the Lord God took the man and he put him into the garden. And look at this. The Bible says, and he put him there to work it and to take care of it. Last week, we spent a lot of time dissecting this phrase. We said, this is a really important phrase because here you have for the very first time the expressed purpose of God's design for man. God creates the man and what is the purpose? It's right here. He created him, he put him in the garden and he said, I want you to work it and I want you to take care of it. So we said, these are actually really interesting words. The word work it can also be translated cultivate. The word take care of it can also be translated to watch over it. So here's what we said. We said, if you can summarize biblical manhood in one word, and you find this all throughout scripture, we said the one word that will define biblical manhood is probably this, it's responsibility. That God has put a unique responsibility on man. When God created man, he said, I want you to cultivate, I want you to watch over that which I have created that underneath your, it's it's a stewardship responsibility that I'm giving to you, that underneath your care, that everything will flourish. So here's what we said. We said that biblical manhood is defined by responsibility, and men are to take this sense of responsibility within them into every relationship they go into. So the Bible says that men take this into marriage, that the man is the one, the Bible says, who is primarily responsible for cultivating, for watching over, for bringing into flourishing his relationship with his wife. Now, that doesn't mean that women aren't responsible. Of course they are, but God has given a primary responsibility to men. They're to carry this with them in their marriage. They're to carry this with them in the parenting. The Bible says that uh, fathers are the ones who are to cultivate. They are to watch over. They are to bring into flourishing uh, those within their family. The Bible says men are to take this sense of responsibility into the church, That they are to cultivate and watch over and care for, for the health and the flourishing of everybody else. And that's what the Bible says is the responsibility that God has given to men. Now, here's what's fascinating. When you get to the creation of the woman, there is a different expressed purpose for which God creates the woman. And you're going to see it at verse 18. I'm going to show it to you. Here it is. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, now, real quick, God has made the man, the man is done He was created first. He's put in the garden. After God created the man, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So I'm going to make a helper that is suitable for him. All right, now, let's just stop there in verse 18 because this verse is loaded. In this verse, like I said, you see the express purpose of the creation of woman. And I believe that in this verse, you actually see um, the essence of what biblical womanhood is all about. All right, so let's, let's kind of unpack it a little bit. I want you to notice first, it says, God said it is not good for man to be alone. So here you have for the first time in a perfect world, there's no sin, everything has been declared good so far, and the Bible says that God creates the man and he's looking down at creation and he's looking at the man that he created, at the human project, and he sees that the man is by himself, probably scratching himself, and God is like, it is not good for the man to be alone, right? And all God's people said, amen, not good for the man to be alone. So, so in other words, what's God saying here? God looks down and he says, the human project isn't finished yet. There's something incomplete. There's something that's lacking here. There's something that is insufficient in the man to fully live out the responsibility that I've given him on his own. And so because of that, listen, it's it's in recognition of this, that God now declares the expressed purpose for which he creates the woman. And here it is, right here in Genesis chapter 2. Why did God create the first woman? Why did God create femininity? Here it is. He says, I'm going to make a helper that is suitable for him. I'm going to make a helper that is suitable for him. You see, here I believe, not only do you have the expressed purpose for which God creates women, which, by the way, God's going to say this two times in this story, that the woman was created to be a helper that was suitable for him. But I believe within this, this statement right here, you actually have the essence, you actually have the meaning of what womanhood is biblically. This is what biblical womanhood is all about. And I, know, I know for some of you, when I say that, for some of you women, when I say that, you think to yourself, now, wait a minute, what do you mean? I'm a helper made for him. You better explain yourself, pastor, right? And, and, and let me just, all right, let's just take a second here. I just breathe for a minute. And, and let me just kind of unpack this a little bit further, all right? This statement is super loaded, and I think it's important for us to look at some of the key words. First off, notice God says his express purpose was that he was going to create a helper, a helper. Now, some of you have different translations on this. If you have different Bibles, it might say helpmate if you have the King James Version. It might say helpmeet. I think that's what it says in the 1811 or the 1611 King James, which I don't think any of you have. Um, But if you have, some of your translations might say companion, which is actually not a good translation. Uh, The best is really helper. Now, the only thing about this term that's unfortunate is that in our current kind of understanding, the word helper, at least in our culture, tends to have sort of a diminutive tone to it, doesn't it? It's sort of like a degrading, belittling term. Like when we think of helper, we tend to think of like, a, oh, you're just a little helper. Like a patch you on your head, God bless your soul. Right, we think of Santa's little helper. We think of the hamburger helper. Like at least that's what I think of. It's like, oh, you're just a helper. God made a helper. Oh, you're just a nice little helper. It's kind of got this degrading, diminutive, belittling tone. Like I know for me, when I think of a helper, I tend to think of my boys. So I got these two boys, they're six and seven. And inevitably, whenever I'm working on a project, they always want to help me. They're always like, Dad, can we help? And I'm always like, oh, yeah, why don't you grab that hammer and go outside and pound it on the ground a few times. That would be a tremendous help to me. And it's just like, I don't really actually need you, but yeah, since you're here, you're kind of a little tag-along person. And see, what the problem is, sometimes when we read that the role of woman or that the creation of woman, the intent was that she was to be the helper, is we tend to read that same diminutive tone into that. But let me just tell you that in the original language, this word carries absolutely none of those connotations. In fact, did you know that the word helper that's used in in the Hebrew language is used all throughout the Old Testament, and the most common designation that that word is given to to describe. Do you know what it is? It is used to describe God. Let, let me give you. I give you 20 examples. I'll give you one. Psalm 33:20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our here. It is. He is our help, and He is our shield. So the Bible says over and over again that God is our helper. Um, that God is an ever-present help. In a time of need for the believer. That's what the Bible taught. He is our shield and he is our help. Now, let me ask you a question real quick. Is God, is God just our, our gopher who plays a casual, secondary role in the affairs of mankind? Like, no, 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 no. But by calling God our helper, what the Bible is saying is that that is not speaking of the insufficiency of God. Listen, that is speaking of the insufficiency of us. We need God to help us. Why? Because we do not have the resources that we need to accomplish the task in which we're called to. So we need God's help. It doesn't speak to God's insufficiency. It speaks to our insufficiency. So let me just say that when the Bible says that the woman is created to be the helper, that is not speaking to her insufficiency. It's actually speaking to the man's insufficiency. God looks and says, it's not good for man to be alone. He is insufficient. He is unable. He is incapable to fully um, complete the responsibility that I have given him to add flourishing to this world, and so I need to give him a helper. I think what's further clarifying, by the way, is the second part. He says, I'm gonna make a helper that's suitable for him. Suitable for him. Once again, really important word here. In the Hebrew, the word that's used suitable for him literally means he, she will be the fit for him. She is the corresponding opposite of him. Okay, so if you think of a puzzle, right, where you have uh, one piece that has certain deficiencies and certain strengths and another piece that has equal and opposite strengths and deficiencies. And when they come together, the strengths of one infuse to the weaknesses of other and the strength of the one infuse to the weaknesses of the opposite. And as a result of that, the two become stronger together. And the Bible says this is what God created with men and women. We are corresponding opposites. We are a fit. God makes a helper. Why does he make a helper? Because it's not good for the man to be alone. There are deficiencies and insufficiencies within him to complete the human project, and so the woman is gonna come to be the helper in this. See, this is what the Bible says is the picture that God creates with men and women. I think even when you look at the design of men and women, you see this to be the case. Our, Our anatomy speaks to this same uh, I, without getting into too much detail, I think you know what I'm talking about. Our anatomy speaks to this, that we are complementary in that relationship to each other. I mean, just think about this for a minute. It is impo- God, the, the command that God gave to humanity was to be fruitful and multiply. It is impossible for us to do that alone. We cannot. We need each other to accomplish that task, but we play very different roles in that action. And that's by God's good design. Now, if you can get that picture in your mind... I think that you're starting to understand what the essence of womanhood is all about. In fact, last week I said, if I could summarize in one word what biblical manhood is, it is responsibility. If I could summarize what biblical womanhood is in one word, I would do it this way. I would say the word for biblical womanhood or femininity would be the word complementary. It'd be the word complementary, right? And I think you're going to see this idea all throughout Scripture. It's not just here in Genesis chapter 2. This is going to carry itself into every relationship that a woman has. Now, let me just shed some light on this because th- this might be a testimony to my own ignorance, but whenever I heard this word in the past, complimentary, I always thought of this word, complimentary. It's, it sounds the same. It's spelled differently. You'll see there's an I here, right? And why? Because this word, even though it sounds the same as the other word, it means something different. This word stems from the word compliment, like when you compliment someone. Like, hey, you look nice today. That's a compliment, right? But, but this word, complimentary, with an E, complimentary, it sounds the same way, comes and is derived from the word complete. So let me give you a definition of complimentary. This comes from dictionary.com, just to clarify. Dictionary.com says complimentary is something that completes or makes perfect, either of two parts or things needed to complete the whole, all right? It is a counterpart. I'm like, that right there is a great depiction of God's reasoning for creating the woman. The woman is to complete. She is to finish. She is to complete the whole. She is the, literally, quite literally in the Bible, she is the other half. And so, the role of womanhood is to Come alongside to use her unique gifts and abilities and skills and to use her womanhood and to use her intellect and to use all of the wonderful things that God has created in her. And she is to come alongside and to use those things in a complementary way. That's what the Bible says. And so the Bible says that when God creates man, he endows him with a unique responsibility, with a, with a primary responsibility. And, and he, he brings the woman who is equal in dignity, who is equal in worth, who is an equal image bearer of God but he creates her for a different purpose in a different way, and that is to be a complementary in that role. And listen, the Bible says when the two of them come into these positions together, together they reflect the image of God in this relationship. Listen, I think if you want to get a good idea of what God was thinking when he created gender, manhood and womanhood, I think a good picture would be something like, like that of dancing. Okay, so some of you... Uh, Maybe are into some of those shows like Dancing with the Stars, and there's other ones. I, my wife likes some of those shows. It's kind of not my thing, but every once in a while I'll watch it with her. And uh, and I was just thinking about it. What makes a really good, like let's just say for example, a really good ballroom dance? Like what makes a really good ballroom dance? Well, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I'm guessing there's a few components that are needed for sure. For sure, what you need is you need two people. You need two people who are equal in talent, who are equal in skill, who are equal in experience. You need two people. And you need both of them coming together, but they need to work in differing ways. They need to work in complementary ways. And so someone in that dance needs to take the primary role of responsibility to take the lead. And the other party needs to be the one who takes the complementary role and follows. And so so he leads. He takes primary responsibility. And when his right foot goes forward, her left foot goes back. And they respond to each other in this beautiful dance. And when they do it well... Equal in skill, equal in talent, equal in experience. When they do it well, it becomes a thing of art. It becomes a thing of beauty, right? Now, if you don't do it well, it can become a terrible thing. So for example, if you just had a man that was ballroom dancing by himself, just a guy out doing the foxtrot by himself, if that's what you had, it would not be good, it would not be good for a man to foxtrot alone right? If you saw that and there was children around, you would call the police. That's what you do, right? And in the same way, if you had two people, if you had a man and a woman who were competing for the lead in that dance, it would be clumsy and it would be awkward and they would stumble over each other and it would be completely disjointed in so many ways. But when both of them, again, equal in talent, equal in skill, equal in experience, when they come together and they play different roles, well, now you got a thing of art. Now you got a thing of beauty. Now you got something people are going to pay to watch and viewers across the nation are going to tune into. And I think if you can understand that, you can understand what God intended with gender. See, genders, uh, contrary to what our culture says, gender was not created that we are equal in the sense that we play the exact same role. And we are equal in dignity and worth and as image bearers of God, but we are different in the parts that we play, and God loves that. And we're created in the image of God. God exists in Trinity. In the Trinity, there is a corresponding relationship where there's a choreography between the three parts of them that work in perfect harmony. And the Bible says when we do that within our gender, we reflect the image of God. Now, here's the thing, all right? That might all make sense to you. Somebody might be thinking, okay, all right, I, I hear what you're saying. I can see that in the Bible. But my guess is, and I'm just guessing this because I've had this conversation before. My guess is that for some of you women, when I say, that the role, the essence of femininity is complementary, is to complete. Uh, that God has, cre- that, that the essence of what it means to be a woman is to use the incredible ways that God has created you and to come alongside and use those in a complementary way within your relationships. My guess is for some of you, when I say that, uh, there is a resistance to that. And there is a skepticism about that. And there is, maybe even for some of you, there is a frustration that is with that. You might even say, I see what the Bible says, and I can't really argue with that, but I just don't necessarily like that. And there, and there might be a, a sense of tension along uh, with this conversation. And listen, let me, let me give you a couple reasons why I think that tension exists. I think there's actually good reasons why that tension is there. Here, here's the first one. I think the first reason why some of you might feel tension when I say that your God-given design is to complete I think for, for some of us, the reason is because, let's just be honest, there's a lot of abuse in this area. Um, historically and currently, there has been a lot of abuse as it relates to women and their role in the church and the family and society. And there's been a lot of abuse here. And unfortunately, um, chauvinistic men have taken the primary responsibility that God has given them, and rather than using that responsibility to serve and for the flourishing of humanity, they have used that and abused that responsibility to subjugate and suppress women. That has happened, and it is happening. Some of you maybe even come from church backgrounds or situations where that has been the case. And, and listen, I'm just telling you, we said this before, but it's worth saying this again, that any, any, any religious system or social system or anything that degrades men or degrades women is absolutely deplorable to God. We are created equal in the image of God, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal uh, in, in, in bearing the image of God. And so because of that, any religious system that degrades women, that suppresses women, that suppresses men, that degrades men is absolutely deplorable to God. It breaks his heart because it's not how he's created us to be. But without a doubt, there's been abuse here. There has been. There just has been. And because of that, it adds to the tension. I think the second reason, this, and this one maybe is a little bit more um, for us, I think it's, part of it's because of the cultural climate we find ourselves in today. Without a doubt, we live in a cultural moment right now where there's more pressure on women today uh, on on pushing towards independence, on pushing towards uh, a self-assertiveness, on pushing towards uh, breaking against any type of um, stereotypes that we might have. There's, there's a unique pressure that's put on women today that has not existed maybe in the past 30, 40, 50 years. And so because of that, I think that just adds to the tension. But listen, I think there's a third reason, and I think this is the deeper reason why this might be a hard conversation for some women here today. I think the third reason is this, is because of what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, in other words, uh, I think the Bible actually says that this is going to be a tense conversation. And why? Because of what it says in Genesis chapter 3. To which some of you are like, well, what does it say in Genesis chapter 3? Well, you got your Bible in front of you. Let's just flip over a page and let me show you what it says in Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to look specifically at verse 16, but before I do that, let me just kind of give you um, kind of an overview of what happens. So Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that sin enters into the human story for the very first time. Men and women were created perfectly. It was wonderful. There was no sin, no corruption in God's creation until Genesis chapter 3. Men and women disobey God and they sin and sin enters into the human story for the very first time, which this is a side note, but I think it's worth mentioning Um, I find it really fascinating that the first sin, that one of the contributing factors to the first sin was that there was a gender role reversal that took place. I just find that interesting. But anyway, the Bible says that sin enters into the world, and as a result of sin, as a consequence, God looks at the man and he looks at the woman and he curses them. He curses the man and he curses the woman as a consequence to the sin. And what's so fascinating is when you look at the curse that God pronounces to the man and he pronounces to the woman, the curses are different. God creates the man, he creates the woman differently at different times, in different ways, with different purposes, and they are cursed differently. They are cursed according to their created design. So how is the man cursed? The Bible says the man is cursed according to his responsibilities, So now God says, everything that you're responsible for is going to be deeply frustrating all the time. And I think all of us men would say, yep, that's true. Work is hard now. It's like an uphill battle, two steps forward, or one step forward, two steps back. Trying to lead in the home, trying to lead in parenting, trying to take that primary responsibility in the home is difficult for men to do now. And and why is that? Because there's been a curse on us because of sin. And the Bible says that God looks at women and he curses them differently. And how does he curse them? Their curse is distinctive to their role. And I just want you to look at it. Verse 16. To the woman God said, this was the curse that he pronounced to her as a consequence of sin, He said, I'm going to make the pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. So let's just pause here for a minute. God says one of the first curses is obviously only specific to women. Why is it specific to women? Because only women can give birth. Some of you are like, dude, seriously? Once again, you went to seminary for that? And I'm like, yes, I did. This is brilliant stuff, right? But no, the truth is that women will have a unique pain in childbirth. That did not exist before the fall. That is, a, that, is, that is a consequence of sin that that happens. This is why, did you guys ever notice, if you ever go to the VFW and you listen to veterans talking about war stories and you hear moms talking about birthing stories, that it's practically the same conversation. Did you ever notice that? It's like the same thing. You hear them, they're like, oh, I was in the trenches for 24 hours, you know, didn't sleep, could barely see straight, didn't know who to trust. I got a scar, you wanna see it. It's like the same conversation in both settings. And why is that? It's a result of the fall. Bible says it's a result of the fall. It's the curse that God has placed on women. But I want you to notice the second part of the curse. This is really fascinating. God says to the woman, the second part of her curse, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And what, what in the world does that mean? Your desire is going to be for your husband, and he's going to... Is it a wrong thing to desire your husband? What if you don't have a husband? How does that pan out? And he's going to rule... What does that mean? Well, I actually think it's really interesting. The word desire that's used here, just to help clarify, it's actually used another time in the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis 4. In Genesis chapter 4, it says this. It says, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to overtake you. And so what does it mean when it says the woman will now desire her husband? Here's what it means. That there is a disordered desire now to usurp that responsibility that's been given to the man, to overpower, to overrule, to dominate over in some way or another, to, to, um, to not re- respond to the primary responsibility of him. And then look what the, what else the Bible says. And he will rule over you. What's that mean? It means this. It means that the, the primary responsibility that God has given men to serve and to love and to, and to cultivate for the flourishing of others, that men will take that responsibility and rather than using it for the sake of others, will abuse it for the sake of themselves and will rule over in a, uh, a sinful way. And so, in other words, what he's saying here is he's saying part of the curse is now that there's a relational curse. There's going to be frustration in the gender roles between each other. There's gonna be a frustration that's gonna stem out of this. If I could put it this way, I think this is really important. The Bible says, as a result of the fall, that for women specifically, there is a disordered desire that takes place, where at one time, God created you to complete. That, that's the essence of femininity. God says, I am going to make a helper that is suitable. It's gonna be a fit to use your unique gifts and strengths and the things that God has given you to come alongside and to complete. The Bible says that now there's a a disordered desire and the heart of a woman now will be that to compete. Whereas at one time, God created the woman originally to to play the role of complementary. Now there is a competition mentality that, that, that sin has created and it exists inside of the heart of a woman. Now, does that mean that men don't have a sinful desire to compete? No, of course we do. But this is saying that there is a unique way in which this plagues and affects women. And I believe this. I believe the Bible is going to tell us that this disordered desire is now going to affect every relationship that a woman has. So you're like, what are you talking about? Well, let me just give you one example. I think that this this disordered desire, first and foremost, affects the way that a woman views herself. I think that as a result of the curse, one of the first effects was now, whereas a woman at one time would see herself as complete in God would see herself firmly established in her identity and who God has created her to be and the role that he has given her, now there is a loss of that identity and there is an insecurity and it shows itself up in a competition mentality. And this shows up in the way she views herself. And so now oftentimes the way that women view themselves as beautiful or as lovely or as significant or as worthy is not based on who they are in God. It's based on how they size up to other women. And so this idea of competition shows up in a comparison, insecurity that's fueled by comparing themselves to one another. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, what do you know about it? You're a guy. Well, let me give you a quote from uh, this really interesting article I read. It's by a woman named Julia Olfiant, okay? Now, just so we're clear, Julia Olfiant, by the way, is not a believer in Jesus Christ. She's not even a Christian, But what she says, I think, is so in line with what the Bible teaches. She wrote this really interesting article. It was called, Why Do Women Check Out Other Women? And I thought, man, that's interesting. So I read it, and here's what it said. By the way, before before I show you this, I asked my wife, I was like, is this true? And I was like, this is is crazy to me. Is this true? And she's like, well, yeah, everyone knows that. And I was like, I had no idea. But I want you to see what, what she says. This is what Julia Olfian says. She says, like it or not, we're all guilty of it. She's writing to women here. Be it an inconspicuous glance at the girl browsing the same clothes shop window as you, or rather the more blatant stares of the girl sitting opposite of you on the subway, we just can't seem to help ourselves. And a recent study has confirmed it. Women spend more time checking each other out than they do the opposite sex. Not a guy problem. Not a guy problem. According to Dr. Caroline Walters, a body image and women's sexuality specialist, it's not just other women's clothes we're checking out either. Look at this. It's practically every aspect of another woman's appearance, from hairstyle to tan, shape, size, even body hair and fat distribution. This is what's so important. Whatever we deem to be the most important ourselves, we check out in other women. And I saw that, and I was like, is that, is that for real? And I went to my wife, I was like, is this, is this true? And she's like, oh, yeah, def- definitely, absolutely is true. I was like, wow. I said, well, wait a minute then. So we're going on date night, and you get dressed up. Is that for me? And <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, I don't know what to do anymore, you know? And, and what is that pointing to? I think what it's pointing to is this, there's this disordered desire now where, where a woman, rather than finding her identity and finding her worth and her beauty and who God has created her to be, to see herself complete in that, now, now feels this pressure to competitively compare herself. How she sizes up to other women, how she sizes up as a mother, how she sizes up as a wife, comparing other marriages, comparing other husbands, comparing those situations. And I think it shows up in these. I think this is what's behind So much of the insecurity and pain and tyranny uh, that women might feel in this category. I think that this, by the way, is what's behind so much of what happens with um, gossip and slander. Which, by the way, I should mention this. Gossip and slander, the Bible says, is a common sin to all humanity. But do you know the Bible puts a specific amount of weight on gossip and slander as it relates to women? Why is that? Well, I think the Bible just knows Men, we are like JV at, at Gossip and Slater. Women are like varsity level at this stuff, right? And why is that? What fuels it? Well, I think part of what fuels that, quite honestly, is it's a competition mentality. It is a comparison. It is the, 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 the need that I feel to justify myself by belittling another person, even if we mask that in prayer requests. It's the need to justify myself and how I compare to other people, which, by the way, that absolutely is, is a is devastating to the heart of God when we do that. But I think that's what's behind it so often. And listen, what is the worst thing that you can give to someone who struggles with comparing themselves and with insecurity and a competition? What's the worst thing you could give a person like that? The worst thing you could give them is a phone that has a camera on it and a social media page. Because all it does is it just fuels this fire of this comparison trap that we can fall into. Just think about it. What do we see on social media? Our streams are full, our social media streams are full of edited and photoshopped and filtered presentations of each other to ourselves. We show the best parts of ourselves. We stage pictures where we make sure the lighting is just right and all the parts that I want accentuated of myself are accentuated. And then I snap a shot and if I don't like it, I delete it and I snap it again and then I put a filter on it and then I throw it up on Facebook and say, just sitting around the house. <laughs> what are you talking? About? Have you ever seen anyone take a camera phone first thing in the morning, snap a picture of the giant zit on their face? That's a big one. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> No one's doing that. Why? Because we're presenting to each other these edited versions of ourselves to one another. We're saying, look at how picture perfect my family is. Look at how, I'm. and, and, and what, it, what it does is it just fuels this. It fuels this. And so oftentimes women will live under the tyranny of feeling like they need to be perfect. Perfect in the way they look, perfect in the way that they parent, perfect in, the, in their marriage. And the unfortunate consequence of this, by the way, is that all is it makes us do is it makes us hide. It makes us feel like if we're really struggling with something, if we really have brokenness in our life, if there really is something inside of us that we're struggling with, that we cannot share that. And so we'll come to church and we'll present an edited version of each other, of ourselves to each other. And listen, let me, let me just say this. This church exists for broken people. That's why it's here. Because listen, all of us are broken. Every single one of us are more messed up than we think we are. I think I'm messed up. I already know I'm messed up. I'm more messed up than I even know I am. And you are too. And listen, if, if, you're, if you're a woman that's in this room and you are struggling in your marriage or in your parenting or if you're struggling with your, your self-image, if you are, listen, if you're struggling with eating disorders, if you're struggling with self mutilation and addictions in those ways, let me just say something to you. You are home here. You are in good company because we're all broken. Every single one of us are. And we all come to Jesus to make us whole and to make us, to make us right again. That's why we're here together. But listen, we have no hope if we can't be honest if we feel like we have to constantly present a veneer to each other, that we got it together and, and we're a Photoshopped version and we can't ever just unearth ourselves and say, man, here's where I'm struggling, then there's no hope for us to heal. But, but if we're honest and we bring, bring those things in the light, healing will be found. I think, I think, by the way, this is why some of the New Testament authors say some of the things they do about womanhood. Let me just give you an example. In First Peter... This is a household code. Here's what Peter says towards women. He says, women, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold and jewelry and fine clothes. Let me just pause here. Peter says, listen, women, your sense of beauty, your sense of worth, your sense of of loveliness should not flow from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold, jewelry, and clothes. What's he saying here? He's saying, listen, your your." identity and beauty and loveliness shouldn't come from the outward appearance or the outward veneer or the outward uh, presentation that you give of yourself. That shouldn't be the source of your beauty. That shouldn't be the source of your beauty. Now, just to be clear, some people have taken this verse and they've said, well, that means women can't wear jewelry or they can't wear, you know, uh, nice things or nice clothes. They just need to wear trash bags all the time. Like, that's what they've used to mean. That's, it's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. He's just saying your sense of beauty and your sense of worth and your sense of identity and and loveliness shouldn't flow from those places. Where should it come from? He says, listen, it should flow from your inner self, from your inner self. I love what he says here, the unfading beauty. Did you know that? There's an unfading beauty. Because let's face it, this type of beauty fades. You can fight it as as hard as you want. Listen, gravity wins every time. Gravity's going to win. Right? But there is a beauty that grows with age. There is a beauty that the Bible says is beautiful in God's sight. It's an unfading beauty. Look at this. It is that of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, now some women in the past have looked at that and said, see, what's the Bible? The Bible just says that women need to shut up and sit in a corner and just be gentle and quiet. But I am woman. Hear me roar. Right? And Let me just say here, when when the Bible says that women should be gentle and quiet, that's not saying women should just shut up. That's not what he's saying at all. The word gentle is also the word meek. And the word meek literally means to take a disposition of trust and rest that God's dealings with me are good. That's what it means. It means quit striving. It means you can trust God. It means you don't have to feel the need to compete all the time. And he says there's a gentle and a quiet. Does that mean I should just shut up? No, no, quiet there actually means still. It means peace. Let me ask you a question. Did you ever have a quiet spirit before? Have you ever had a, a gentle and a, a meek and a still and a peaceful spirit? Did you ever experience that before? When there's just, when there's just rest, there's not this incessant need to compete, to uh, to to see how I size up to other people. There's not an inner angst within me to prove myself. I'm not clamoring for control. I can just rest. Did you ever have that before? God says that, that is a beauty. God says that is a beauty that women should seek after. And look at this. He says it's of great worth in God's sight. In other words... God doesn't want his daughters to live under the tyranny of defining themselves and how they compare to other women. He wants you to be free from that. And he wants you to live in, in a place of freedom and rest that your sense of beauty and your sense of worth and your sense of loveliness flows from him. And you can trust that with him. So, so the Bible says that there's a disordered desire inside of women It moves from completing to competing It shows up in the way they view themselves. Let me give you another place it shows up. It shows up in marriage. And so in the marriage relationship, the Bible says that women will take this disordered desire where they were intended to complete, they will now take a competitive mentality with them into their marriage. This is why Genesis chapter two says uh, that the woman's desire will now be for her husband. It will be to overpower. It will be to overrule. It will be to uh, usurp his, any attempt of leadership or responsibility. It will be to distrust him. It'll oftentimes be a result of the curse. And listen, some women, some wives, uh, if you're a wife in this room, some wives, they do this actively, and some wives do this passively. So some wives, for example, some wives do this actively. They're just aggressively trying to overbear their husband. And so I, I am the one who wears the pants in this family. I make the decisions. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy Right, and and you can hear it in, in the way some women talk. They just domineer their husbands. I I tell him what to do, and I tell him what he ought to not do. I give him an allowance, right? And I, he comes in wearing that. Ain't no man of mine ain't gonna wear something like that out in public. You get back in, or you put on what I laid out for you, and it's just like, wow. And some women do this aggressively, and they do this actively. And listen, some women do this passively, and I, I don't know what's more dangerous, honestly some women, just by their quiet unwillingness to allow him to lead or, or their skepticism or their constant um, uh, resistance, holding the best parts of themselves back and reservation, I'm just not going to, if that's fine, you can do what you want. I'm just not going to bring the best of myself to bear for the flourishing of this relationship. Listen, I, and, and this is why the Bible says in Ephesians, That women are to take an idea of a complementary uh, uh, understanding into their relationship with their husbands. So, in Ephesians, wives are to submit themselves to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is a savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And we said that men and women are to take these gender identities with them into the marriage. And so, men are to take primary responsibility, and they are to sacrifice themselves for the sake and the flourishing of their wife, and they're to take that responsibility of cultivating and watching over that relationship. But because of sin, men oftentimes will default to passivity or they will default to dominating, and they will abuse that responsibility. But the Bible says for women, what they will do is they will want to overpower their husband, and this is why the apostle Paul says, no, women, you're to take this idea of of complementary, of completing, and you're to bring that into your marriage. Take the best parts of who you are how God has created you to be, and you bring those things to bear in that relationship for the flourishing of your marriage. And when that happens, something beautiful takes place. Listen, why? if you're a wife in this room, I've said this when we talked about marriage a couple weeks, but, but it's worth saying this again. You have an unbelievable amount of power and influence in your marriage. And you can, listen, you can make or you can break your husband. You just can. And you can either by a competitive um, uh, unwillingness to allow him to take the responsibility and leadership within your marriage, you can either, by doing that, absolutely emasculate him, castrate him from any potential of leading at all, and in so doing, bring violence upon your own marriage, or you can come in with a complimentary mentality and bring the best of yourself out of reverence for Christ out of reverence for who he's made you to be as an equal partner, equal in worth, equal in dignity, but different in role, to bring all of the unique things that you bring into the marriage for the flourishing of that relationship. And I'm telling you, you, you will watch your men be convicted to be the man that God has called him to be. And it's all because of God's good design. I, I could say a lot more about that, which we did when we talked about marriage. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back. Uh, my wife actually came up here and helped me answer some questions on that one. It was fun and so you can listen to that. Let me, let me give you one more relationship that, this, that this, uh, this idea of completing is to show up in according to the Bible. So in a woman's relationship with herself, in a woman's relationship in her marriage, for those who are married. Here's the third one. In, in, in a woman's relationship with the church. The Bible says that this, this idea of complementary is to show up. Now, I just want to mention quick on this. It's unfortunate. I wish we had more time. I could probably do a whole sermon series on this. And we might actually need to do that at some point in time. But let me just give you a sound bite on this because I think this is an important, um, an important topic. I get a lot of questions about um, what is the role of a woman in a church? And, and some people ask that question, like, man, I don't know, some churches women preach, some they don't preach, and why doesn't that happen here? And what exactly is the role of women in church? And so let me explain to you, and I, like I said, unfortunately we don't have time to get too into it, but let me give you a sound bite, okay, to help you here. Um, if you can understand the way that God has designed the family, I think that if you can get that, then you have a microcosm of the church. So the Bible says that the church that we... Uh, for those of us who follow Jesus, that we are the family of God. And if you can look at the family structure as God has designed it, and you can understand that, then you can understand the church. So how did God design the family? God designed the family that a husband and a wife, both equal in worth and dignity, come together in marriage, and they play different roles. The husband is to take primary responsibility, and the wife is to come along in a complementary way. And together, when they do this, it is to bring flourishing and in life into the family. Now, if you can get that, you can get the church because the, church, the family is just a microcosm of the church. So what does that look like in the church? Well, the Bible says that there is a role called eldership. And biblical elders, the Bible says, are to, is a is position that is reserved for godly men. And those godly men are to oversee. They are to cultivate. They are to watch over and take primary responsibility for the church. That's eldership. That's just like the family. It's just like the husband's role in the family. Now, what does that mean for women then? Does that mean that women can't teach, they can't lead, they can't do anything, they just need to sit in a corner and trust the elders? No, 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 no. Just like in a marriage, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. The, the Bible seems to say that every position within the church, with the exception of eldership, is something that women occupy. Let me just give you a couple examples. So, in the Bible, Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul endorses women prophesying in the church, which is oftentimes attributed with a speaking gift. Romans 16.3, Paul refers to Priscilla, a woman in the New Testament, as a fellow worker in ministry. It was a designation also applied to Iodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4.3, who participated in the work of evangelism alongside of Paul. Women played a huge role in the early church. Phoebe was referred to as a deacon in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Deacon is a servant leadership position within the church. Uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection were all women, and they were given a command to go tell the disciples about what they had seen. In fact, there's only one time in the Bible that you see um, a teaching that is off limits to women. That is 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12, and most likely commentators would agree the idea there is speaking of an elder type of leadership. So what does that mean? Here's what it amounts to. Here at Grace Church, we believe that the church is God's family, that eldership is reserved for godly men, that those who take primary responsibility in overseeing and leading and authoritative teaching is something that's reserved for elders. But that means that, man, women do all kinds of things here. And we would say that we are incomplete without women in the church in the same way that God would say the same is true about mankind from the very beginning. And so here at Grace Church, women lead ministries. Here at Grace Church, we have women on staff that are part of the executive team. We have women who are deacons that lead in life groups. And so they lead alongside of godly men, but they teach and they lead in those ways. And We have women that are evangelists, women that are are deep into theology, all of those things. And we celebrate all of that as well. And so what we'd say is that the only type of leadership that's reserved for godly men is that of eldership because it reflects God's good design in Genesis chapter 2 and also within the family. Now, that's just a quick soundbite. I wish I could say more. If you have questions about that, by the way, we would love to help you process through any of that. You can email uh, Pastor Seth Tonkar. His email is stonkar at graceohio.org. And uh, I'm just kidding. I mean, yeah, you can email Seth. He actually is probably smarter than I am. But you can email um, me too. We'd be happy to help you navigate through some of that stuff. All right. And so here's the thing. I think bottom line is this: this whole conversation about gender. I think what it really boils down to, you guys, is I think it really boils down to an issue for those of us who follow Jesus. I think it boils down to an issue of faith. You know, First Peter says something really fascinating in First Peter chapter three verse seven. It's actually speaking to women, but this is what it says. It says, you are daughters of faith if you do what is right, and then he says something I think is so insightful, and if you don't give way to fear. See, and I think that's insightful because you know I think at the crux of this issue, as we talk about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, a lot of times the tension and the resistance that we feel is based out of fear. It's a fear. For some, for some of you women, honestly, when I say, let me show you the, the, the created purpose of when we see it in the Bible. For some of you, when you see that, it makes you scared. And the reason it makes you scared is because you don't know if you can trust your husband. It makes you scared because you're afraid to relinquish the illusion of control. And quite honestly, for some of you, you're full of fear because of it. The Bible says that you are to be women of faith. See, so Because here, here, here's the thing. We have a God who is good enough, who is wise enough, and who loves us enough to know what's best for us. And when we look at what God has designed and we say, I don't know if that's the best, I don't know if that's right, what we're effectively saying is, God, I don't believe you're good enough, I don't believe you're wise enough, I don't believe you're loving enough to define gender for us. And that is the, that is the, the effects of the very first lie that led to the very first sin. And so it comes down to faith. Will we trust God? Will we believe him that what he designed is good and is for our good and is for his glory? It's because here, here's the bottom line, you guys. Our gender, your gender, my gender, your femininity, my masculinity, it's actually not even about us. Believe it or not, contrary to what our culture teaches us, for those who follow Jesus, the Bible says that our gender assignment that God has given to us is not even about us. The Bible says that it's about displaying the image of God and displaying the glory of God. for the the odd-looking world to see. And so when we live out marriage the way that God has designed, and when we live out parenting in the way that God has designed, and when we operate with, with generations the way God has designed, and when we own our unique gender roles the way God has created them, the Bible says that even though our culture might look at that and disagree with that, they will not argue that it is a beautiful design and that what God has created is good. When people look at families, where marriages model what we see in scripture. They will see something beautiful. And when they look at a church that, 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 that lives out the gender roles as God has created, they will see something beautiful because they'll see the image of God displayed in us. And so it's not even about us. It's about reflecting the glory of God in an everyday revolution. Ask the band to come up. And as they do, I, I just wanna end with one final quick thought and then we'll pray. And that, that's this. It's really interesting to me that in Genesis 3, there are curses that are given to the man and there's a curse that's given to the woman, but there's actually a third curse. And the third curse is one that's given to the serpent, to the devil. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that the, the, the curse that was given to the devil was that God looked at him and he said, there's going to be an offspring that's going to come from the woman. And he says, in that offspring, you are going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. In other words, what God said is he said, your doom is certain, and you're going to injure this offspring, you're going to crucify him, but you're not going to defeat him, because in the end, he's going to conquer over you. And listen, the Bible says that that was a prophecy that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus came, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And listen, he came that when we follow him, he will create out of us a new creation, and he will make us into a new humanity that reflects his glory and that, and that goes back to the way that he has originally designed us to be. And so what that means is this. You and I cannot be the men and women that God wants us to be without Jesus Christ. We cannot. We can't by sheer effort just grit our teeth and try to be better men and try to be better women. It's not gonna happen. It takes the power of Jesus within us to work itself out in a new creation and a new humanity. And so if you don't follow Jesus... Here's where it all begins. Surrender your life to him and let him make you into the man or into the woman that he has caused you to become. Let's pray. Well, God, I'm just thankful for your word. I'm thankful for what you said to us because um, the truth is, God, we don't, we don't need more opinions. I don't think we need more uh, thoughts of what we seem, what seems right, what seems wrong. I don't think that's been very helpful God, we need your thoughts. We just do. We need, we need to know what you think about these things. And so, Father, I'm thankful that you've given us your word, that within it, it contains your logic. You, we can, it's amazing. It's mind-blowing to me that we can know the mind of God. And so, Father, as we approach even your word today, I pray we do it with a spirit of humility and receptiveness to see what you would have for us, God. And Father, as we look at this design that you've created for men and women, it is a beautiful design. You are so wise to create us equal, but to create us so different. Man, we we, we honor women and men as equal, and God, we celebrate the diversity of just how awesome we are and, and the differences. Celebrate women, the, the amazing and beautiful design that you've given to them. We celebrate men and the amazing and beautiful design of the, God, we celebrate the roles that you've created? What a beautiful thing. Father, it's all been corrupted and it's all been tarnished. And Father, we we live in a world where uh, we look at your design and many people look at it as bad or as hurtful. Uh, But God, it's good and you're good. And so I pray that you'd help us to trust you. God, I want to pray specifically for women in this room. I pray, Father, that you would liberate them from the uh, pressure and the expectations that culture oftentimes pushes on them to be something, Father, I pray that you would help them to come humbly to you, to be determined and defined in their womanhood by what you say is good. So Father, uh, we we trust you and we love you. I pray that we be blessed for having heard what we heard today. We ask these things in Jesus' name.